Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. It's good to see you all bright and early. I'm excited this morning to teach on the famed Scottish reformer, John Knox. And the PowerPoint today is mostly going to be bullet points, more of like a form of a timeline, because his life um, was a lot more choppy than the other reformers. He, he bounced around. He fled this country and that country, and uh, he, he didn't he didn't live to be very old. So he uh, he had a very full and dramatic life. So I want to get through most of those highlights, and then uh, and then have some time for discussion if we if there's time left. So let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much for this time to gather again this morning on the Lord's Day. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to teach on church history and the significance of the Reformation. I pray as we study the lives of these men, we'll be encouraged and convicted for taking things for granted. I pray that we'll be encouraged and, and emboldened to stand on their shoulders and carry out the ministry that, that they started in Western society. I pray for a new generation of Knoxes to be risen up to continue to reform the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, John Knox, the great Scott. So, we're going to start out by talking about his early life as usual. Obviously, he was born to a Catholic family. He went to typical Catholic school, just like the other reformers. He was sent to university. And he excelled there at the university. He earned his master's degree at age 22. And he was first exposed, again, like some of the other reformers, to Protestant theology at the university in, uh, in, uh, in Scotland. His academic ability and, and mental sharpness landed him a job as a private tutor for two prestigious families. And it was here where uh, Knox really began to see the truth of the gospel and the error of the Roman Catholic Church. Before he, he got to his post as a tutor, again, post meaning position. Sorry about that. Before he got to his position as a private tutor, he was ordained as a priest but there was no parish for him to go to, and so he, he ended up becoming a private tutor because of his academic ability. So at this point, he, he's still fully engulfed in Catholicism. But these two families that he became tutors for were not. They were Protestant. And it was through their influence where he became heavily influenced to the point where he said this, it pleased God to call me from the puddle of papistry. So whenever you hear the term papist or papistry, it's just another reference to the Roman Catholic Church. So during this time, 
this is probably where he was converted, somewhere around this time. He became influenced by an, an itinerant preacher, George Weishart. And he became so encouraged and emboldened and just really inflamed through this man's influence and discipleship. And it was because of his love and admiration for this, for this man named George Weishart, he decided that he would follow him and become his bodyguard. Now, why on earth would a simple gospel preacher need a bodyguard? <laughs> yeah. For the same reason the apostles got persecuted, uh, especially in uh, Scotland at this time, it was it was heavily dominated by Catholic uh, religion, and and again, as as you guys probably are are, are really keen on now, is that in this time of history, uh, the church and the state were married, so it was a, it was a capital offense, it, it was a crime to to be considered anything other than Catholic, let alone preach against it. So, um, John Knox took up his double-edged sword, literally, um, attached it to his hip, and he followed his, his mentor around uh, and protected him from people that would try to kill him for preaching the gospel. But uh, it wasn't enough. He was eventually arrested, thrown in jail, and Knox Kind of like Peter, who took out his sword to fight for Jesus, Knox was going to try to slash his way uh, or slash his mentor's path to freedom. But as a wise gospel preacher, he told Knox to return to your pupils and God bless you. One is sufficient for one sacrifice. So, Weishard did not want... Knox to be killed alongside him. He wanted Knox to keep going, pick up the mantle, and keep preaching. And that's what he did. He became the, uh, the preacher at the, at the castle there in St. Andrews, where he developed his love for preaching and gift for preaching. When he was approached to take this position as preacher at the castle in St. Andrews, he went away and locked himself in his room for a few days. Because even at this juncture in his Christian life, he understood the gravitas of the work of preaching. Not only because it's a spiritually high calling, James 3.1, right? But he knew that if he was going to step into a pulpit and preach the Bible, it was going to preach against Roman doctrine, which means you're signing up for a life of constant confrontation and danger, and suffering. So, with fear and trepidation, Mr. Knox stood up. He would later affirm that after he preached his first sermon, that that place where God first, in public, opened my mouth to his glory. He then affirmed, I must be blowing my master's trumpet. So I think every preacher can relate to that in some sense. I mean, when I was in seminary, 
almost every single seminarian would ask somewhere, sometime, to some professor, how do I know I'm quote-unquote called? Right? Because in our circles, sometimes we tend to make the calling to ministry a very mystical, mysterious idea. But it's not. The only time the word called is used in the scripture, it refers to the calling of salvation. So, um, Dr. Lawson, I remember in response to one student who asked that question, he said, sometimes you don't know if you're really called to the ministry until you've been doing it for a while. And uh, that helped me because, you know, I was wrestling with some of that mystical, you know, uh, doctrine while I was going through because Hebrew was not fun for me. So I, I really didn't even know if I was called at some point in seminary. But this, this Dr. Ross's answer helped me. And it wasn't until I started preaching after a few months, maybe a year, where I felt no matter what I do, if I have to get a job at Lowe's to pay the bills, I'm still going to be blowing my master's trumpet no matter where I go. I'm always going to have that fire in me that wants to preach God's word. I'm always going to have that fire in me that is willing to sacrifice friends and family and, and popularity and wealth because I believe that blowing my master's trumpet supersedes everything that I could ever do. So, a former tutor, a former bodyguard, a former priest steps in to one of the most sacred places in Scotland's history, St. Andrews, and begins to preach the word of God boldly. But that wouldn't last long. Because again, Roman Catholicism was the ruler. And if you know, I, I'm not an expert in, in, in um, English history, Scottish history, or European history. Actually, what little I do know has probably come from studying church history. But, um, the, you know, the French were also heavily Catholic, right? And the French what would, was also involved in the politics heavily of Scotland at the time. So the French show up to Scotland um, in partnership with the Catholic um, monarchy. And they, they, they take um, St. Andrews by force. And uh, there's a, a battle. They have to, the, Knox and his followers have to surrender. And so John Knox is taken as a galley slave. Everybody know what a galley slave is? Anybody not know what a galley slave is? A galley slave is somebody who sits at the bottom level of a ship and they, they row the oar. So you picture a movie, you know, where typically it's African African men that are down there rowing. Well, that was also a common practice then too. So you can imagine what life must have been like for John Knox. Um, I think it was about 18 months or so, a little under two years, where he was um, held captive as a galley slave. And I think another reason why church history is so important. Because it, 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 it slaps in the face the false gospel of, of the prosperity theology. Right? I mean, John Knox, all, all he did was preach the gospel. All he did was preach in the Bible. And it landed him 
a life as a slave. One of the, one of the most gruesome and, 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 and demeaning uh, slaves that there were in history. I mean, it's one thing that, you know, to be sent into a field and, you know, work, work, working, the, uh, you know, the farm or whatever. But to be confined to a to a to a tight place in the bottom of a ship, full of men who are starving, they haven't you know, they've had poor sanitation. I mean, if you've been inside of a man's locker room, you can imagine what that must have been like, right? So he he was suff- This is one way he suffered, and um, and not only phys- physically, but you can imagine the spiritual anguish because. Even while he was a slave, these French sailors would come to him and try to convert him back to Catholicism. On one occasion, a statue of Mary was thrust in his face. And he refused to uh, kiss the statue, and he threw it overboard, and he said, Let Our Lady now save herself. She's light enough. Let her learn to swim. So, another reason why I like these men, they were not cowards. You know, sometimes it's okay to offend people. Especially when you're being told to worship an idol. No doubt, that was very offensive. I can imagine how they responded. But, that was just one occasion, you know. How many times was he ridiculed and spat on and, 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 and criticized for being a gospel preacher? So finally, after about a little under two years of being a galley slave, there was an agreement reached between the two monarchies. Um, and he was allowed to go back to, 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 uh, to Scotland, but it was too dangerous for him. He couldn't go back to Scotland because of, of the persecution that he would endure. So he goes to England and finds a place to work in England for a few years. He continues to preach the gospel and shepherd. He is appointed as a royal chaplain, one of six royal chaplains in 1551, and, uh, which is, you can imagine, a very prestigious position, right? I mean, it'd be like, me going to be one of Donald Trump's chaplains, you know, that'd be a pretty important job, right? Having the ear of the most powerful man in the country, right? So he uses this position again. He's not a coward. He doesn't relent when it comes to his polemics against Rome and the mass. I would say, after reading this biography of John Knox, the biggest problem that he had with Rome was the doctrine of the Mass. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But uh, the the renowned preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a.k.a. the Doctor, said that, you know, looking back on this period in, in, in English history, that this appointment of chaplain to Knox positioned him in the right, right in the center of the affairs of England. So, what does that remind you of? 
kind of reminds you of Esther, doesn't it? For such a time as this, Knox was put in the court of the king. But in 1553, any, any history buff to want to take a crack at what happened in 1553 in England? No takers? That's okay. I wouldn't have known that either last week. Ever heard of a girl named Bloody Mary? Queen Mary? She came into power in 1553, and she unleashed terror against anybody who was not Rome, was not Roman. She would go on to slaughter 288 reformers, including women and children. Which is why George Fox, I think it was George Fox who said, uh, maybe it wasn't, correct me if I'm wrong. Who was it that said that uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? That could have been a patristic quote. Anyway. The blood of these reformers that were slaughtered by Queen Mary in the 1500s is the seed of even this church. So by now, the Reformation has spread from Germany to Switzerland. Now it's going to Scotland and to England. And then where does it go after that? The Grand Old U.S. of A., right? It was the Puritans who were influenced by John Knox who started the Christian church in America. So you see how, I hope you guys, I hope you guys are um, starting to see more and more why I say all the time that, that, that we stand on these men's shoulders. We, we benefit from these, from these men who gave their lives for sola scriptura and all the other solas. So, John Knox has no choice but to flee Scotland, and he goes to Germany. He becomes a pastor in Frankfurt for a couple of years. And then, just a couple things on that position is, and I didn't know this until a couple days ago when I read his biography, is, you know how, like I said earlier, that that John Knox really despised the doctrine of the Mass. He saw that as one of Rome's chief idolatrous practices. And so, so much so that he had a problem with the Church of England's practice of kneeling during communion. He thought that was too Romanesque. And so he, he, he argued with, with Cramner to, you know, to... Um, you know, that's sinful, we shouldn't do that, it's, it's idolatrous, and, and, and Cramner had to write, you know, um, the Book of Common Prayer, he, at least the book I read, specifies that no, we're not worshiping it, but, but John Knox still didn't like the idea of kneeling during communion. So when he went to Germany, uh, which, which, was a, which was a refuge um, for for Protestants who were being persecuted in Scotland, England. So there were hundreds of, of Protestant refugees flocking to Germany, but they also brought with that the desire for more Romanesque litur- liturgy 
like what you see in the church in, in the Church of England today. And by the way, that practice is still, you know, done by the Anglican Church, which is evolved from the Church of England. I remember when I was uh, in the cha- Army Chaplain School, one of our assignments was to go visit uh, different chapel services just to get exposed to different styles. And so I met this one Anglican priest in my class and. I don't know. He seemed like he believed in sola fide, so we became friends. And, uh, and, and he took me to an Anglican chapel service. And it was more Roman than Protestant. That was my experience. And I do remember kneeling um, in the pew during the communion service. And at the time, I didn't really think much of it. Um, do Anglicans worship the Eucharist? I don't think so. I don't think they intend to. Would I kneel again if I went? Probably not. But 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 all the, I just say that tell you that story just just to you know illustrate the fact that the same same thing that John John Knox had a problem with in the Church of England is still going on today. And it was so significant that he got fired for it. He was ran out of this church in Frankfurt because he he refused to. Uh, to compromise on on that issue of kneeling during the uh, the communion service and also the, some of the liturgy that he thought was too Romanesque that was get, that was brought in from the Church of England. So after he got released from that position, he he traveled a while and did some itinerant preaching, and then he goes to uh, excuse me that sorry about that that's Geneva the Geneva pastor 1556 to 59. Uh, he goes to John Calvin in Switzerland, and he becomes influenced by John Calvin. They become friends, and uh, his time in Geneva is where he really uh, matures in his understanding of Reformation theology. And so during this time, God is just crafting him and molding him and making him the man that is going to go back to Scotland and reform the country. So that's what happens next. Well, in Geneva, he gets a letter with some good news. What good news might that be? Queen Mary's dead. So you can come home now. And they ask him, the the people, the remnant that's left at St. Andrew's, writes him, and they say, come back to us, come be our pastor. So he consults with John Calvin and some of the other leaders in Geneva, and they say, yes, you need to go back, go back to your homeland, go back and shepherd those people. So he, in 1559, he makes his way back to his homeland of Scotland, where he begins to reform the church in England or Scotland. Before he gets there, before he gets to his church, where he's going to pastor for the rest of his life, he does some itinerant preaching and... You know, some things get shooken up along the way. And finally, he gets to Edinburgh, where he takes his position as the preacher. During this time, though, the young king who had come into power after Bloody Mary died. And another queen named Mary took the throne she was also a very young, staunch Roman Catholic, but she wasn't as vicious as Bloody Mary um, because 
she she in one sense from what i gathered she was restrained from being as ruthless as bloody mary because before blood before this mary came into power there was a treaty that was agreed upon that allowed the scots to practice their protestantism and so there was that legal agreement in place which somewhat kept this mary accountable because by the time this mary came into power it was illegal was the opposite it was illegal uh, to partake of the mass and so here we go we have another queen that's a roman catholic she comes in she she disregards that agreement she she has a mass that's a, a public celebration and uh she begins to criticize John Knox's preaching because John Knox again he doesn't relent he doesn't compromise he doesn't say let's just play nice let's just win them over with our love i'm just going to keep preaching the bible and he did in fact, right after he found out that this Mary comes along and, and, and rejects the old agreement, he says from the pulpit, one mass is more fearful, fearful to me than if 10,000 armed enemies were landed in any part of the realm of purpose to suppress the whole religion. One mass isn't that amazing? You, you, you might look a little dumbfounded right now because, again, you don't know what it's like to be a Protestant in 16th century Scotland. Even here in America today, we don't understand the significance of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass. Because I've said before, that is the centerpiece of their worship experience. I'm going to talk about that in my sermon later today. So, this queen gets, catches wind of Knox's bold preaching. You know, he's not, he's not preaching how to have a happy life, right? He's not teaching how to live your best life now. He's, he's teaching about things that bind the soul, right? And so, this queen summons Knox... And Knox goes and says, Your will, madam, is no reason. Neither doth your thought make that Roman harlot to be sure an immaculate spouse of Jesus Christ. Wonder not, madam, that I call Rome a harlot. For that church is altogether polluted with all kind of spiritual fornication as well in doctrine as in manners. <laughs> That's bold, isn't it? He stands before the queen herself. Who had the authority to say off with his head. He stands before her and he says, I call Rome a harlot. So forgive me if I sound like a broken record. But... This is why I have such a passion for this. 
It angers me and it grieves me to see Protestant Christians today remain in ignorance. Thank God that Rome doesn't have the power she did um, at this time in history, but the doctrine's the same. The official teaching of the church is the same. I would love to stand up in our pulpit and call Rome a harlot, but thanks to the mainstream preachers today, that would offend everybody. So I don't. <laughs> but I don't agree with John Knox just because it sounds manly and brash. I agree with what John Knox. It's true. It's true. For many reasons. Oh, so moving on, he, he continues this cyclical go-between with the queen. For the sake of time, I, I don't want to go through all of them, but there's at least four or five different times after this first interaction where John Knox preaches something, she catches wind of it, she gets mad, and she summons him. And then John Knox takes her to school. He goes back and he preaches something else, and she catches wind of it, and she gets mad. John Knox takes her to school. In fact, I remember reading one of these confrontations between the Queen and Knox. You know, at this time, Knox is in his 50s. He's gone through so much. He's gone to hell and back, right? He is a master of the Scriptures. And here he is arguing with this 17-year-old girl about the Gospel and church history and everything. And so finally, um, she, 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 she says, maybe I should call upon you know, some of the Roman Catholic Church leaders to talk to you. And I, I can't, just I'm paraphrasing what he said. He's like, I would love for the most learned papist to be in here right now and, and, and be taught the word of God or something like that. So whether it was a, a teenage dramatic queen who knew nothing or the most educated, experienced papist, John Knox is willing, willing to go to battle. It's not so much like that in Europe anymore, <laughs> sadly. It's probably worse than it is here. So, finally, I think Queen Mary gets herself in trouble. She gets removed from power, and her son, who was 13 months old at the time, of his coronation, ends up being the King James that would produce a King James Bible. So, after this marriage out of the way, he, uh, he enjoys a little bit of peace. But then he, again, is betrayed by one of his own followers. He has run out of... of uh, of uh, Edinburgh. He goes back to St. Andrews for a couple years. Things clear up in Edinburgh, and he goes back to St. Giles in Edinburgh. And he preaches there until he dies. 
Uh, he, he, was not, he was not murdered. He was not martyred. From what I read, the man just worked himself to death. He died quietly uh, in, in bed with his wife, with his successor. I, think, I thought it was interesting his successor was a man that's my age. Well, no, I'm 33 now. The man that took over for John Knox was 32. He was surrounded by his loved ones, his associates, his followers. His wife stood over him and read to him John 17. And he, uh, he preached until he couldn't walk. The last few sermons he preached had to be carried up, propped up. Again, just off the top of my head, I mean, doesn't doesn't that rebuke our culture a little bit? Where, where we live for retirement, you know, we, we 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 turn sixty and we punch out of the church and go get in an RV and tour the country. Well, these reformers didn't do that. They preached until they couldn't even walk. They preached until they died. That's, that's, that's the pattern they left for us. That's the example they, they left. That's why I, I have so much admiration. That's one of many reasons why I have so much admiration for guys like John MacArthur. That man's going to be 80 years old. He's still, pre- still preaching twice every Sunday. Now, that's faithfulness. These reformers modeled that. And so uh, Steve Lawson said that the one area in which Knox proved to be most impactful was in a return to biblical preaching. So I guess to kind of wrap this up, another reason why the the Reformation is so important and, and encourages me so much is because these men, they, they, they were not just uh, blips in the pages of history. They were not just academic elitists. They were men that changed the world simply through preaching God's word. That's where the reform came. It didn't come from the publication of works that was part of it. But the primary fuel that was used to spread the Reformation was in pulpits. It was in the streets. And so th- that's one thing that keeps me where I'm at. It's not, I mean, I, I, you guys, I'm sure you can imagine being a pastoral ministry is not the most easiest job in the world, right? If you think so, we should try it sometime. <laughs> I would love to go get a Ph.D., read and write, show up into a classroom, say a bunch of stuff, and then go home. I'd love to do that. That would be easy. But I'm still convinced that the way that our culture is going to change and the way that church is going to be reformed is through preaching. So... That's why I'm committed to 
continuing to grow in my preaching ministry because I'm convinced based on history and the Word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Preach the Word in season and out. It doesn't say teach the Word. It says preach the Word. So... I would commend this book to you. This was the book that I used. This is my primary source uh, for preparing this lesson. It's, it's a very short book. It's about 120 pages, and you can read it in a few hours. If you're a slow reader, maybe four hours. That's another thing that the Reformers teach us, is that we should be readers, right? If we, if we can sit and watch a three-hour Seahawks game or watch a four-hour movie, we, we should be reading books like this. These books that Steve writes, you know, they're not for, for seminarians. They're, they're written for, for the church. They're written for anybody who has no education to the person as the highest. So John Knox, Fearless Faith. I would commend that book to you. You can get it on Kindle for like eight bucks. So um, since there's not, no line out the door to get in, I'll just take a few minutes to answer a question or two. So, if anybody has a question, anybody at Aaron? Yeah. Um, not specific to this, but in, in past lessons you've said it's hard to find biographies yeah. on some of these guys. It, besides this one, are there others that you can find pretty easily? And second part is like you mentioned also some of the other guys had some writings. Did John Knox have some writings? He did. He published. Yep. And do you in know fact, how many or what they are? What's that? Do you know how many or what they are? I don't know how many. I know one. Um, Steve Lawson talks about those in this book. I do remember one that kind of made me chuckle was he uh, he wrote a polemic against Queen uh, Bloody Mary while he was in Europe, and uh, he you know he called her Jezebel and you know it was a, it was a strong correction to her tyrannical. Um, government. Maybe as the series is concluding, we could compile a list of recommended resources for the reformers. Thanks for volunteering. No, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Um, there's, um, I would, I would recommend the Pillars of Grace, another Steve Lawson book. But I, I'm, I, off the top of my head, no, I, I don't know of any of any sound biographies um, written written on John Knox. But I, there there might be some. I just don't know. Yes, Aaron. You said earlier uh, uh, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Can you explain, you know, just briefly, kind of how that, how persecution actually furthers the uh, gospel, and you know, just in, just in light of where Christianity in America could be going in the next five, ten, twenty years? Yeah, well, I'll I'll, I'll give my take, and I bet you could add on to it. Um, so whenever whenever you look back in church history, even from the patristic era, you guys, and when I say patristic, you guys know what that means. Anybody not know what that means? Patristic, it, it's it, it's a, it comes from a Greek word named father. So patristic era is the is the era of the early church, the church fathers. So the Athanasius, Augustine, you know, up during that time. What's that? Huh? One to one to four hundreds. Yeah, or even yeah, even a little bit beyond that. Yeah. 
Um, like with Polycarp, you know, those guys who were associates of the, of the apostles. So, but even, even during that time, right, you, you know the stories of the Roman Colosseum where Christians were thrown into uh, gladiator rings and they were given to wild beasts to eat for entertainment. You know, ever since Christ ascended, Christians have been persecuted and killed for their faith. And one of the things that that does is it purifies the church. Because, you know, if, if, if somebody started persecuting Christians in America, probably, maybe I'll be gracious and say at least half, I think it would be more, half of professing Christians would, would, would vanish and they would deny Christ. And, then, and that, that would bring a purifying effect on the church. It would get rid of the tares. It would get rid of the false teachers. And the true believers and true shepherds would come together. And they, and they, would, they would fix themselves on Christ and they would keep preaching. Um, so so that's, that's what comes to mind when I think of that quote. What would you say? Um, well, combining what you have commented about John Knox and most of the other reformers and what the Christian uh, church did in Acts 8 when they were being persecuted by Saul and they flee Jerusalem, uh, genuine Christians flee and go preaching. Or they, they, they preach while they're fleeing. Um, and so I would say not only does persecution, persecution purify the church, but it also gets evangelists to go out. And, and evangelize as they're going out. And so it, it has a sp- uh, purifying and a spreading effect. Yeah. Tom, maybe the last question, we'll wrap up. I was curious what his, the content, I get the idea that the content of his messages mm-hmm. was just um, expository yeah. preaching. And I just wondered how much he would... Uh, revile the Catholic Church in his preaching or did he have to even worry about that? Oh yeah, it was a major part of his preaching. Because again, you know, we we view mixing politics and religion almost as a taboo. Like you know you don't hear I mean you don't hear a healthy balance of it, right? You have, you have churches who that's all they care about is politics, and you have churches that don't talk about it at all. They don't think it's important. Well, that's, it's hard for us to read John Knox always talking about the government because we're so divorced from that time. Like I was alluding to is John Knox, if he, if he saw something immoral or um, unorthodox going on, then he would, he would call it out from the pulpit. That's why that's why he, he he kept getting summoned by the queen. So I mean it was it was it was it was in the infancy of the Reformation. So I don't know if he went on a tangent against the Roman Church every single sermon, because I read in this book we really only have one manuscript from one from his sermons, but you know his writings, um, you know in, indicate that and. and What's written about him indicates that you know he didn't he didn't pull no punches. So I think considering that most of these reformers were former, you know, that these are people who grew up Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. and so it was it would be natural 
and I think appropriate for them as they're digging through the scriptures and they're they're uh, being confronted with doctrine and they're they're preaching it, presenting it then to the church. It would seem natural and appropriate for them to uh, preach in response to what they used to believe and what their what the congregation used to believe. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's close in prayer and prepare for worship. Father, thank you so much for this time to study the life of John Knox. Thank you for his boldness. Thank you that you've given him, that you did give him the gifts of preaching and that you put him in the right place to hear the gospel and be saved. I pray for our church, Lord, to be committed and passionate about these same things that John Knox fought for, risked his life for. May we not forget his history, Lord, so we do not let it repeat in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.